start sharing on? Yeah, so we'll start off kind of with that just guitar singing, then we'll end in the same way. So, cool. Let's move on to our last one then. My worth is not in what I own. just go through that last line on the chorus. Um, so, I will trust in him no other. 
my soul is satisfied in him. It's a very like, da 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 da. Like it goes kind of all over the place. So uh, I just want to make sure that we're all on the same page <laughs> with that part. times. Let's run through. Let's just do that that last line, yeah. Let's do the whole chorus, yeah, just so we get a feel for that last part. So, one, two, three. God rejoice in my Redeemer, greatest treasure, wellspring of my soul. I will trust in Him no other. kind of go it kind of goes up and down and jumps all over so all right good uh all right that sounds good let's uh, go join the thank you very much pastor chris please be praying for our students and our teachers as they head down may god give them the wisdom and patience and all that fun stuff they might be even a little tired since this was the first week back at school. All right, my name is Pastor Nate. If you have your Bibles with you, we're going to be continuing in Acts chapter 21. Um, if you don't have a Bible with you or you would like a Bible, there's a blue Bible in the chair in front of you. I encourage you to take that home if you don't have one with the one condition that you just read it. As we just learned about today from Pastor Chris, the word of the Lord teaches us all of what we need to know um, about who God is, but also how we are to live. Um, all the songs that we sing come from the Word of God, and uh, so I would encourage you to read it. So it's on page 542, if you don't, uh, of that blue Bible in the chair in front of you. And as you turn there, let me ask you these couple questions here. What are you willing to risk? Right? We all, we live in a world of risk. So when someone says to me, oh, I don't risk anything, I'm like, you drove here, so... Uh, you risked at some point today, or you walked, especially if you're walking across the street, you're definitely risking something. Uh, I've walked across the street in this city, and uh, yeah, it's crazy. Um, so for all of you students who walk, pray for them. Um, but what risks, what is a risk that you're willing to make? What is something that you think that you could risk? What made you make that risk? Or what would make you take that risk? I, uh, you know, I think of uh, a couple summers ago, my family and I were up at NBC, and we had the opportunity to hang out with my cousin, and we did some cliff jumping, and, you know, you're taking a risk, right? You're, you're looking down, and you're like, okay, so there's three cliffs in, in that lake there. There's one that's like 10 feet, and there's one that's 15, and there's one that's 40. You know, I stopped at the 15. Uh, some other people in my family were more risk takers than I was, but, you know, I'm older. Um, and with that should come wisdom. Uh, and that's where we go. 
but you know what you can take that risk knowing that there's water on the bottom right and you're gonna unless you do a belly flop in which case that's unfortunate um, but if you just dive in you know that you're gonna be safe for the most part but probably the prospect of what type of risk you're gonna take and if you are gonna take a risk is this what is the reward of taking that risk is the reward of taking that risk greater than the risk itself and we take risks. As humans, we are risk takers. We don't know what the future is. We live by faith, as the word of the Lord says. We take steps of faith, believing who God is, which means that we don't know exactly everything that's happening. So we do live by faith. And as we get into Acts 21, Paul is willing to risk his very life for something as he continues to move forward. As each step he moves towards Jerusalem, that sense of the risk becomes greater. And in Acts 21, he is reminded multiple times of this risk, and the people actually try to dissuade him from continuing to take that risk. And that is what we will see as we continue to worship our awesome God through his word. He knows what is ahead of himself, but why? Why is he willing to take the risk? Why is he willing to do that? Why is he willing to suffer all the things that people tell him along the way? Why? And to me, why is like the most important question a lot of the times. You ask your, like if you're a parent, uh, you're, you're, you're like your kid's favorite word sometimes. Why? But I think it's a legitimate question. Why must I not eat candy all the day, all day? Well, because you're going to throw up and be sick and become anemic and, you know, scurvy, which hasn't existed since, like, the 1800s. But let's read Acts 21, verses 1 to 6. The word of the Lord says this. And we had parted from them and set sail. We came by the straight course of Kos and the next day to Rhodes. And from there to Patera, and having found a ship crossing to Phoenicia, we went aboard and set sail. And when we had come in sight of Cyprus, leaving it on the left, we sailed to Syria and landed in Tyre. For there the ship was unloaded, unloading its cargo. And having sought out the disciples, we stayed there for seven days. And through the Spirit, they were telling Paul not to go to Jerusalem. And when our days were, uh, sorry, there were ended, he de we departed and went on our journey. And they all, with wives and children, accompanied us until we were outside the city. And kneeling down on the beach, we prayed and said farewell in our, in, to one another. Then we went on board the ship, and they returned home. Verse 7, and when we had finished the voyage from Tyre, we arrived at uh, Ptolemas, and we agreed to the brothers and stayed with them for one day. On the next day, we departed and came to Caesarea, and we entered the house of Philip, the evangelist, who was one of the seven and stayed with them. He had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. While we were staying for many days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea, and came, coming to us, he took Paul's belt and bound his own feet and hands and said, Thus says the Holy Spirit, This is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. When we heard this, we and the people there urged him not to go to Jerusalem. And then Paul answered, What are you doing, weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And since he would not be persuaded, we ceased and said, let the will of the Lord be done. After these days, we got ready and went up to Jerusalem. And some of the disciples from Caesarea went with us, bringing us to the house of Manasseh of Cyprus, an early disciple with whom we should lodge. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to God. Father, we just thank you for your word. We thank you for the chance we have to continue to, in our worship as we listen and as I preach of who you are. I pray that you give us ears, enable us to listen, give us hearts to hear what your word has to say and, to, and the strength to apply what we are learning today. 
And Lord, I want to preach so that you are glorified and I want to speak of you and praise your name. And Lord, I can't do this on my own, so will you not make this turn out well? So by your spirit, help me to preach this sermon with what is needed. Use this sermon to bring glory to your name, Lord. May you be glorified this day. Joy to your people and salvation to the lost. And amen. In verses 1 to 6, we see Paul stops in Tyre. And um, if you remember our map from last week, you can see, oh, there it is. Um, you can see how Paul continues on in his travels. This is a continuation of the narrative of the story of what we saw from last week as Paul continues to make his way back to uh, Jerusalem. Remember, he has a bunch of money that he has with him uh, from the collections that he's made, uh, taking all the generosity from all the other churches around to help the church in Jerusalem. So now he's on his way and he stops entire, and Luke continues on where we left off. And what I like about this first verse right off the bat is we see some very strong language. And when we had parted from them and set sail, we came by the straits of uh, the course of Kos. And in that, the NIV translates it very well. It says, after we had torn ourselves, he says, Luke says, away from them. You can see the relationship. Remember from last week, we saw uh, how Paul was taking time to pray with the elders in Ephesus as we took time to see what it means to be an elder and, and exhorting you to pray for the elders of this church. And you see that relationship there. Imagine that. They're just like holding on to Paul. This could be their last time they see him. So they, they're pulling themselves away as he continues on. So they travel, the traveling party hugs the coast with the smaller ship because smaller ships can't go into the big, big sea and they just hug the coast as they go along and they get onto a bigger ship that enables them to cross the Mediterranean to get to Tyre. And they land in verse four in Tyre and they seek out the disciples as they stayed for seven days. Something we need to see is that time and time again in scriptures, hospitality becomes a big thing. There's a reason why it's a requirement for eldership to be hospitable. And we'll get into that in a little bit. Because it's also a requirement for anybody who's a Christian to be hospitable. And we see how Paul and his team show up and they're looking around for other Christians and the Christians open their doors for them. And it becomes a time of mutual edification, of building into each other. But what is hospitality? That, that word hospitality is, is, a, a, is two words, love and stranger. And a stranger could be anyone who really isn't your immediate family. It could be your friend or enemy, a widow or an orphan, a trafficked woman, someone who is a, a street involved, a refugee, a landed immigrant, a foster child. There's a whole slew of ways in which we can show hospitality. It could be an, our neighbor, who maybe their house burned down. And it's important for us to understand hospitality. Rosaria, Rosaria Butterfield wrote a great book on hospitality called The Gospel Comes with a House Key, and I encourage you to read it as she walks through what it means to be hospitable as a church. And when Peter says to Jesus, see, we have left everything and followed you, Jesus responds in Mark with this comfort, truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brother or sister or mother or father or children or land for my sake for, and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold. That's not talking about you're actually going to get a hundred houses, right? We, like, I have a hard time keeping up with one. I don't need a hundred. What he's talking about is that now that you're part of his family, you have access to a hundredfold homes. There should never be a Christian who's out and about trying to find a roof over their head. As he continues on, now is this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecution and in the age to come eternal life. And that's Mark 10. See, the gospel comes with a house key, and that key unlocks the hundredfold, Rosaria continues on, a God, of God's provision of family and community for others. Hospitality is ground zero of the Christian life. It also means sacrifice, because if you're like me, you know, I kind of like my castle to myself. 
right? I like to go home and just be by myself. But that's not what God has done for me. Ultimately, we see the church practicing hospitality to strangers because they serve a divinely hospitable God who showed what it meant to be hospitable. It's in the gospel that we see a Savior who daily practiced hospitality. When we read the gospels, we see all the compassion that Jesus showed for the physically sick and the spiritually impoverished, the demon-possessed and the blind and the crippled and the poor. The book of John concludes with even saying, there's so much more that Jesus did that can't even be contained within this book. That's why it's a requirement for elders to be hospitable, because elders are called to be examples of what it means to be Christ-like. It's why the church is called to be hospitable, because we serve a God who has been divinely hospitable to us. Think of all the ways that God has provided for you. You could probably keep going all day if you really wanted. We always start with the big stuff, right? The easy thing. I got clothes, I got food. How about the breath that you breathe? The ability to come to church on Sunday in a world where there's many of our brothers and sisters who can't. See, how was God divinely hospitable to us? Through Christ, all those who have repented and believed in Jesus Christ have been adopted into his family. We are called co-heirs with Christ. Co-heirs. Galatians 4 verse 7 says, So you are no longer a slave, but a son, and if a son, then an heir through God. That's a lot. Everything that God owns belongs to us as because we belong, because we belong to him. Our eternal inheritance as co-heirs with Christ is the result of the amazing grace that God has shown us. Remember that movie Annie? I watched the movie. I don't know. There was a musical, I guess. I don't know. But I, I thought it had a really cool picture. Because you think about it, there's this girl named Annie uh, who is living in this most despicable orphanage you can ever f- imagine. It's falling apart. The, the, uh, the woman who runs it is, she's a joke. Um, she should be in jail, really. But the girl named Annie moves from a despicable orphanage to a Warbucks mansion. The movie changes everything. For, the, the move changes everything for her. She leaves behind a despicable alcoholic car t- car, car caretaker sorry, and enters a relationship with a caring father. She goes from having no possessions to having more wealth than she could even imagine. The hard knock life is overcome by the brightness of a sunny tomorrow, as the song says. I think it is a great picture of what it means to be co-heirs with Christ. Because Romans 8 says, and if children, then heirs, heirs with God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. This is the outcome of the gospel. In the lives of those who repent and believe, no longer are we strangers to God, no longer are we destitute, no longer are we broken or lost or separated from him, but now in Christ Jesus we are healed and found and united with him. Because of what Christ has done for us, we too can be uh, this for other people. Just like the church entire was hospitable. Not because they are nice people. I'm sure that they were nice people. But that's not why they did it. They were being hospitable because they have a God who is hospitable towards them. Remember, it's more of a blessing to give than to receive. So, Although, as we continue on, and through the Spirit, they were telling Paul not to go to Jerusalem. So wait, here's the hard thing, right? Does that mean that Paul was in disobedience as he continued to walk towards Jerusalem, if they were by the Spirit telling them to do this? And here's the answer to this. No, Paul was not being disobedient. What they were being revealed was true. Paul was going to suffer as he went to Jerusalem. He was going to go through hardships. He was going to be in prison. He's talked about this before in the previous chapters. What they were interpreting was, I don't want to lose Paul, which is not a wrong thing. We don't want our friends to suffer, right? 
If, if you do, you, you need to go see some help. See, Paul had already been expecting this. We saw that in Acts 20 a couple of times, how he, he longed to just finish his course well by the grace of God. They didn't see that it was God's will for him to go to Jerusalem so that Paul would be the apostle to Gentiles even in Rome. They didn't see that. They could not see what the future is. They could only know that Paul was going to suffer. And how could Paul continue to be the Gentiles, the apostle to the Gentiles if he's dead? So, but they didn't see. We see this in Acts 23, actually, verse 11. The following night, the Lord stood by him and said, Take courage, for as you have testified to the fact about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. So God's will was that Paul would suffer and that he would bring the gospel to many nations through the suffering even in Rome. So Paul stays true to his mission. But why? Why is Paul willing to make that risk? Because when we have our hand and it's getting close to the fire, what is our natural response? We pull it away because it hurts, right? And if, if you keep your hand there, you, you, again, you need to go get some help. <laughs> go see the doctor. That's our natural inclination when we have suffering and pain. That's how we're wired. But Paul knows as he's putting his hand into that fire that this is going to hurt so why does he keep going? There's something that's hard-hitting, at least it is for me, and hopefully it is for you too. God doesn't need us for his word to continue to increase. And Paul understands that. When we start thinking that the growth of the church is dependent on the life of an individual, then we miss the point that Christ is the one who established and preserves his church. We're called to be faithful. And Paul was being faithful. In verse 5, at the end of this time, the whole church leaves with Paul out of the city, and they prayed. And what were they praying for? For the disciples in the city to embrace the will of God, just as Jesus did, as Jesus prayed. In Matthew 26, verse 42, My Father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. Paul remained obedient, keeping his eyes on the treasure of knowing Jesus Christ. On the mission of proclaiming the name of Jesus Christ, Paul's life was marked by prayer, and the church was as well. They prayed as they sought to be faithful. They knew that the mission was so, they knew what the mission was, so they continued on the mission, but that didn't mean that they stopped praying. One thing I've been reminded of is uh, I've been in Nehemiah a little bit in my personal time. And over and over again, you see this pattern. God tells him to do something, and he prays, but he continues to do it. He, he's not using prayer as an excuse to uh, not do what he's been called to do. And I think sometimes we do that. But here the church continues to pray. And we want to know God's will for our life, and you can read about it in his word. Like, God, we, we, we take time and we say, God, you know, please show me your will for my life. And we, we take so much time in prayer, and we're neglecting that God has already called us to go and do something. To go and make disciples of all nations. And Micah 6 says, he has told you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you, but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with our God depending upon your translation, to walk in obedience with your God. There's a great example of what we've been called to do. And Paul prayed and he moved forward on the mission. So Paul boards the ship and he continues forward. And Paul continued to be an example of what it means to follow Jesus, to walk humbly in obedience to his Lord and his Savior. And he continued in the footsteps of his Lord and Savior who stepped down from his throne to save the worst of sinners. The man least deserving of grace and forgiveness. And we walk in the footsteps of our Savior when we submit to his revealed will no matter the costs. Even when we don't want to do something. I think Pastor Chris reminded me this week, you know, submission is not submission unless you're doing something that you don't want to do. And well, that's true. 
We're called to submit to God. And we can do that more and more as we continue to understand who God is, because that's what's going to answer the why. Why does Paul continue to walk forward? Why does he continue to make this risk? So in verses 7 to 16, he stops in Caesarea as they continue in their travels. So they make it to uh, Ptolemus, yet again experiencing the hospitality of the saints that comes from the hospitality that was first shown them through Christ. And you know what's an interesting thing, especially when you're looking at the map? Do you notice something as you look at it, as as we've been reading through Acts? It's been almost about 20 years Have you seen the word of God and how it has continued to increase and prevail mightily? Everywhere they're stopping, they're getting hospitality by the local church. God's word is continuing to grow. And it's an amazing thing as I read through this. And Paul's reputation has spread quickly. And we see that, and we'll see that next week, where there's Jews from Asia who come and, and confront Paul in Jerusalem. His his reputation has spread, but as his reputation has spread, the gospel has spread because Paul is consumed by the gospel. His whole mission is to accomplish what God has called him to do. And what a great reminder for us as well, as we see in Isaiah 40, verse 8, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of of our God will stand forever. Like, you and I are sitting here 2,000 years later, because the word of the Lord has continued to increase and prevail mightily. We're living testimonies of God's word continuing, of his grace continuing, of the gospel continuing to proclaim, which brings the question to us as we look at this, is what are we trusting in? What are we trust in? It is the God who has revealed himself to us in his word, Are we ashamed of proclaiming the thing that has lasted forever? So, in verse 8, they leave that place and they go to Philip's. And who is Philip? Philip was introduced to us um, as one of the seven in Acts 6. Remember, they had an issue where there was a group of Christians who weren't being taken care of, so they established this group of seven who would be in charge of and oversee the administration of the food. Right? He was one of these guys. He was also the man who we saw God brought to uh, an Ethiopian in the middle of nowhere to preach the gospel to, and God gave him a heart that enabled him to believe, and he baptized that Ethiopian. As the gospel continued to increase, even into Africa from, from the Middle East. And then he was teleported. Don't spend too much time on that. But now he's in Caesarea, And he is an evangelist. And the evangelist is someone who proclaims the good news. In other words, a preacher of the gospel, someone like a missionary, something like that. A person with the gift of evangelism is often someone who travels from place to place to preach the gospel and call for repentance. In Ephesians 4, God gifts people with the gift of evangelism for equipping the saints for the work of the ministry. Which means... That the evangelist is not the only one doing the evangelizing. He's helping to equip us to do that as well. In verse 9, Paul had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. Now, I'm the lucky one who gets to talk about this. Um, And we're going to take a couple of things that come from this. We're going to ask, what is a prophet? And we're going to talk about roles as well as we see in God's word. But let's first answer this first question here. What is a prophet? When we look at examples of what a prophet is within the the Old Testament and the New Testament, they are people who are working outside of the normal hierarchy of God's people, which is interesting. And their job is simple, to speak the word of God to the people of God with the help of the Holy Spirit. And often it's helpful to be outside of the official structure to do that. We see that with Jeremiah. We see that with Nathaniel when he confronts King David. We see that with Samuel, with Saul. We see that throughout all the scriptures. But someone may take this passage and say, because there are women prophets, there can also be women elders. But the thing that is being forgotten is that prophecy is a gift. 
It's, it's classified as a spiritual gift. And just like evangelism is a gift, because Philip is described as an evangelist, because he's an evangelist doesn't make him an elder or an overseer. Because he was an elder or overseer doesn't make him an evangelist. See, the office of elder is an office that is laid out in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1. It is an office of authority within the church. And all of that is within the context of 1 Timothy 2.12, which lays out what that is to look like. As an acquaintance of mine wrote not too long ago in a great article on this very passage, he says this, We should celebrate women prophets and cultivate their voice within the church. We need more people speaking truth to power, not less. Women bring a much-needed perspective, and women who are filled with the Spirit of God, saturated in and submitted to the Word of God, should be considered gifted and able to speak to the church, provided they recognize the structure and parameters of the body within which they function. It's important. So to recap, the job of a prophet is to speak the Word of God to the people of God with the help of the Holy Spirit, but prophets aren't pastors. So they enter in and they come into this other man named Agabus in verses 10 to 11. And we've been introduced to him as well before. He was the man who prophesied that there would be a famine in Jerusalem. And there was. And he takes a Old Testament prophet style and he, he takes Paul's belt, which to me is interesting. If another guy comes up to me and kind of just like grabs my belt, I'm like, what are you doing? Right, like... We're not this type of relationship. But nonetheless, I think you get the point. You get the point really quick. If someone grabbed your belts and he binds his arms and his feet and he says, look, the one who owns this belt, this is going to happen to you. It's an Old Testament type of style, method of showing what will happen. And not that Paul should go. He doesn't say that Paul shouldn't go. He's just reminding Paul again, this is what's going to happen. And when we heard this, as we see in verse 12, the we includes Luke, who's writing this right now. So even Luke is part of this group right now. We and the people there urged him not to go to Jerusalem. Because again, the people heard of the suffering that will happen and asked him not to go. Maybe they're, maybe they're thinking, well, Paul, the church needs you. Maybe, maybe we need you. Maybe... We won't survive without you. And it's amazing how fast we can go to thinking that the church can't possibly survive or thrive without some sort of preacher or pastor, but who is the one who establishes and preserves the church? It's Jesus. Why? Because he's the only one who has obtained her by his blood. Does God use great men and women throughout history? Absolutely. And history is full of them. I was reminded about this yesterday with talking with our friends, like Amy Carmichael, for example. But it's God's work through them, not them working, that establishes and preserves the church. You want to know what's the most humbling thing as a pastor? This. God doesn't need you. He doesn't. One of the most uncomfortable things that ha I, I try to struggle with is someone's like, well, look what God's doing, looking how God's using you. I'm like, ah, I don't know. Knowing that what I am doing is, nothing th is not through my own power or skill or what will be accomplished is anything that I have done. I am expendable. Paul was expendable. You are expendable. And Paul knows that, and he has said that. I am willing to be imprisoned for the sake of Jesus Christ. I've been willing to be taken off the playing board and put aside for Jesus Christ. Why? Why is he willing to do this? Why, why is he okay with continuing to go forward. He understand that this is God's will. God has provided in many ways already. He's provided passage from A to B to C. He's provided the funds to get that passage. He is, he is, he's now going there to give that money or maybe to do some evangelism, whatever it may be. But why? 
Why does he continue to go? Because his desire is simple. He wants to make much of Jesus every day using the gifts God has given him and confirmed by his brothers and sisters. So in verse 13, he says, What are you doing? You're weeping and you're breaking my heart. And Paul's heart breaks for his friends who are upset and crying because he will miss them too. And I can't help see how Paul is an example of what it means to take up your cross and follow Christ. In verse 14, because they understand that Paul is stubborn, they finally just say these amazing words, let the will of the Lord be done. See, what is the will of the Lord for Paul? To go to Jerusalem. So he must go to Jerusalem because it's God's will. And because he loves God, he will obey God. And a disciple seeks to obey God. Not because of duty, but because of love for the one who gave his life for him or her. But how do we know what the will of the Lord is for our lives? 1 Corinthians 10.31 says, So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. That's the will of the Lord for your life. Bring him glory in whatever you're doing. God's word has specifically shown us his will for our lives. If we aren't seeking to walk with the demands of God's word in every day, then how are we going to be able to consider the prompting or the urging of the spirit at any other point? It starts with obeying what, how God has revealed himself. You know, for example, someone might come to me, and I've had this conversation, I praise God for these conversations, when a young person comes and says, hey, you know what, I think God is calling me to be a missionary. I love those conversations, because we're all about raising up and sending out. That's our job, right? Raise up and send out. I don't get to keep people for myself and kind of hoard them like a closet somewhere. I get to raise them up and send them out. My follow-up question to that statement from that young person is always the same. Tell me how you are fulfilling the mission here. Because if you're not being obedient with God here and now, how can you know that God is urging you and spurring you on to do something else? So, what about the job of, uh, what about your job, or what about the school, or wherever you are? Whatever you do, whether eat or drink, or whatever, do it all for the glory of God. And that is what Paul is doing. So Paul is resolved to follow the lead, leading of the Holy Spirit regardless of the cost. Why? And here's the why. Because he treasures knowing Jesus above everything. Philippians 3, 8 to 10, indeed, I count everything as lost because of their surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ as my Lord. Can you say that? I struggle with even reading that. Can you say that knowing Jesus is worth risking it all? Because he continues on. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish. The word there is a lot stronger than garbage, by the way. Paul's la or Peter's laughing because he knows it's true. We can't even talk about that from the pulpit. In order that I may gain Christ, he says. And be found in him, he says, not having righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his suffering, because like him in his, becoming like him in his death. And that gives us the why he counts everything as rubbish. Why he's willing to risk everything. Because of what Christ has done for him. Because the treasure he has now that can never be taken away. The hope that he has in Christ. The hope that we sung earlier that we will be in Zion. We will feast in the house of Zion. I love that song. Is his hope. He is willing to risk it all. He's willing to move forward. It's Paul's love for Jesus that he continued to move forward knowing what is ahead. It's knowing the love that Jesus first showed him that prepared him for what is to come. 
This understanding, like in 1 John 4, in this is love, uh, sorry, in this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he, his, he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. See, friends, my brothers and my sisters, see that there is, this is everything. I am willing to give up everything. This is a blip on the radar. This life is a blip. I don't even know if you can count it a blip. It's like not even there. In the grand eternity of radar. The commentary put it this way. In the midst of the storm, they found themselves in the eye of God's perfect will. And they found contentment in knowing that following him was better than anything that could be offered to them. Any trouble that was going to happen in the path of obedience was something Paul was ready for because he knew and understood the love of Christ. So they continue on. And Paul has two encounters in Acts 21, one with Philip and one with uh, Nasimus. And it's interesting because Philip was there at the very beginning, so was Nasimus. They were both there. Where do you think he was getting his information as he was writing Acts? Well, you see God's sovereignty as he brings people into this that enables Luke to write what we have here today that can build us up and encourage us. You imagine those conversations. Wow, God did that? 3,000 people, really? I could just imagine sitting around the fire just talking with those two men all day long. And that's what Luke got to do. And we get to be encouraged and exhorted today because of what God has done. So what, you may ask, what's a risk you're willing to make? For Paul, he was willing to risk his life. His love for Jesus was so great that because the risk of losing everything was nothing compared to the richness of knowing Jesus Christ. So here's a great question that we can ask. Is our love for Jesus great enough that we would be prepared to risk our very lives for him? Paul, Paul's love for Jesus is true. He did say, indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus, Christ Jesus, my Lord. And he does end up losing his life. I think some of us think, oh, I'm, I'm willing to, I'm willing, I'm willing to risk my life. I'm, I've got it, God, I'm really, but let's back it up a little bit. Are you willing to risk your job? Your relationships with your family? Are you willing to lose your brothers and your sisters, your mom and your dad for the sake of knowing Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? Are you willing to, I don't know, give up that new TV so that you can help a family in need? Are you willing to not buy that new car because there's someone else who might need a car? What are you willing to risk for the sake of knowing Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? Is he your greatest treasure? Because if you understand what God has done for you, if you truly understand that you're a sinner saved by God's grace and that this is a hope that can never be taken away from you, if you truly understand that, then you can say with Paul, this is rubbish. It's all rubbish for the sake of knowing Jesus Christ. Because as Romans 5, 8 said, God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. The more I come to know and understand and be consumed by the gospel, the more I see as everything else in this world fades. Have you ever tried, when I was a kid, I used to stare at the preacher in church, not paying attention. But I would just stare there and see how long I could keep my eyes open. You know what's interesting when you do that? Don't do that right now, okay? Because you should be listening. But everything else begins to fade. Everything else. Everything else in the background, in the peripheral vision, all gets blurry. And all you can see is that one thing that you're focusing on. 
We need to fix our eyes on the author and the finisher of our faith more and more every day in order to live like we've been called to by Paul and by God. We, he is everything. And if he is everything, we will just fix our eyes upon him. Fix your eyes upon him. He died for our sins and he rose from the dead. He died a horrific death on a Roman cross for the sin that we committed, that I committed against the holy God. Sin that would have made us spend eternity in a very real and deserved place called hell and to be the objects of God's wrath. But through Jesus' death and resurrection, through repentance and faith, I am no longer that. No longer are you that if you repent and believe. I have been transferred from the kingdom of darkness to his kingdom of light. As Ephesians 2 verses 4 to 6 says, But God, being rich in mercy, gave because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace we have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. The more I understand what God has done for me, the more everything else fades. The more I'm willing to risk everything for him because he is everything. But God showed his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Our love for Jesus prepares us to risk everything for him. What are you willing to risk for him? Let us pray. Father God, we just thank you for today and the chance we have to continue to worship you. I pray that we would be a church that is, that I would be a person, that we would be a person, that we would be a church that's so in love with you because you have first loved us. And because of that, Lord, we have a hope that can go beyond all understanding that enables us to risk everything because we have everything in you. Amen.
can go down there too. I'm going to ask uh, Thelma and Emmanuel to come on up. I have a blessing, and is this your family? Oh, they can come too if they want. I get to, part of my job is that I get to hold babies. Um, it's, it's better, it's not like a politician, but a lot better. Um, you're going to have to come up to the stage though because I have to have my notes here. <laughs> come on up. You can come up here, this way or that way. All right, this is Emmanuel. Emmanuel is in the process of becoming a member here at Knollwood and his beautiful wife, Thelma, and their twin girls. Are they sleeping? Yes. <laughs> oh, she's not. Which, one, which one's which? This is Adriel. This is Abigail. Adriel and the guy. I'm not going to move. Can I hold one? Hi. Oh, here. Oh, no, don't cry. Oh, don't cry. Oh, yeah. Beautiful. Children are a blessing from God, all right? And we just want to give a little bit of an encouragement to you as new parents who are probably very tired because you got two for one deal. Yeah. Bless you. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. All right, Deuteronomy 6, verses 4 to 9 says this, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your might, sorry. And these words that I commanded you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them, he says, Moses. You shall teach them diligently to your children. And shall talk with them when you sit in your house and when you walk by and when you lie down and when you rise, you shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be on the frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Essentially, he's saying, put it everywhere. All right? It doesn't mean you got to grow out your sideburns or something like that. Emmanuel Thema, these words from God's word remind us of the biblical responsibility. Oh, that's fine. Here, how about I do this? That's better, right? There, now I got a free arm. Emmanuel and Thelma, these words from God's words remind us of the biblical responsibility we have to nurture our children to raise them up well in a way that honors God, to teach them all that God has called us to do and to be. As we were reminded about earlier, God's word tells us all of who he is, what a great opportunity it is. How can we do this? We can model your faith. Live it out. Let them see you walking with God. Let them see you reading your Bible. Let them interrupt you reading your Bible as you pray. Teach them diligently of who our God is. Take time to teach your children the ways of the Lord intentionally every day in every conversation as you, it's almost fall and the trees are going to turn, right? Look at the God created. Pray for them continuously. But church family, we're not off the hook on this one, right? We get to get to come alongside of them as well. 
because this is a community of faith, and we come together to do these things. So church, support these parents. They have twins, okay? (laughs) Encourage them, equip them to be parents that honor God. Let us continue to pray for Emmanuel and Thelma as they bring their family up in the way of the Lord. Let us be examples ourselves of what Christ-likeness is. And grandparents who are in this room, you've already been through this, so you can maybe give some word of advice, right? Grandma, you give words of advice, right? So in this moment, let us remember what God has called us to do in Deuteronomy 6 and commit ourselves to walking with them but also may you be committed to raising your children up in the way of the Lord. I should have wore my Kwaku gave me one of these things. But let me pray for you guys. Lord, we pray for Emmanuel and Thelma. We pray that you would give them wisdom as they seek to raise their children up in the way of the Lord. Lord, I pray that you would give these girls hearts unable to believe. Lord, we pray that they would grow to know you and that we would see them continuing to walk in a way that brings you glory. Lord, maybe one day going overseas and bringing the good news of Jesus Christ wherever they may go. But we pray that you give wisdom to Emmanuel and Thelma and to their family as well. Surround them with people who will constantly point them to Christ. I pray that you surround these girls with people that will constantly point them to Christ. And Lord, I pray that we we as a church would take seriously our call to walk with these families as they seek to be faithful parents. And amen. 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 All right. Now we can have our benediction. Where are you, Dave? There you go. Thank you. Hey. I'll, yeah, there you go. Thank you. <laughs> See, look, at, she likes me. Yeah, she does. <laughs> I'm the baby whisperer. Oh, wait, and I got this for you guys. <laughs> there you go. Oh, that's beautiful. A call in faithfulness, church. Our benediction today is from 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 16 and 17. Now, may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who loved us and gave, himself, gave us eternal comfort and great hope through grace, comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. Just before we're dismissed, I just want to remind you here, we have the barbecue coming right up here, and I'd like to return thanks for our food. Yes, it's a time there where, well, some celebrate, you know, the passing of summer, some rejoice to the coming of fall, <laughs> but we're gathering together here the barbecue just for renewing fellowship as we launch into our, our fall season, you know, of ministries. And please, pray for them. Become a part of them. Gracious and loving Heavenly Father, we thank you for all your provisions. First, your provision for us in Christ Jesus. But for this time here now, for this, for this food, we give you thanks and acknowledge again that every good gift that we receive is a gift from your hand. So we ask, Lord, that you bless our time of fellowship here and as... Uh, as we prepare, as we go into this new season uh, of serving. For we pray in the precious name of Jesus, amen.